Guys, welcome to the I Love Seville show. My name is Jerry Miller. Thank you kindly for joining us on a Tuesday afternoon in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. We're live from our building, the Macla building on Market Street. And today's show I'm very excited about. Mike Pruitt is in the house. This gentleman is running for Albemarle County Board of Supervisors in one of six districts. His district is the Scottsville district. He's running unopposed and, you know, we're, we're, we're common sense folks. He's going to be on the board um, on a four-year term starting on January 1, and we'd like to get to know him. The cool thing about this show is it's long-form content. Nothing can be taken out of context. There's no sound bites. It's not 15 seconds, 30 seconds. We have context. That's why mayors and supervisors and senators um, and delegates and business owners come on the program, because they can trust us and, and, and we follow through with what we say we're going to deliver, and we do that all the time. I want to highlight um, Judah Wickhauer. Judah Wickhauer and I have worked alongside each other for 12-plus years. He is uh, a brother from another mother, and oftentimes I spend more time in Judah's um, sphere or vicinity than I do my wife and our children, and that's just the nature of running a, a small business. You, the viewer and listener, can interact with the program by sharing your comments, questions, thoughts. We don't mind being challenged but it's going to come from a mindset of the golden rule. So if you don't want to uh, embody that golden rule mindset, please don't uh, sh share thoughts, because um, that's something we prioritize on the, on the show. J-Dubs, um, I think we're ready to go to the studio camera and welcome what is going to be the Admiral County Supervisor of the Scottsville District, Mr. Michael Pruitt. Good afternoon to you, sir. Afternoon, Jerry. I appreciate you all having me. It's a pleasure. Um, it's our pleasure. First question, same question I ask everybody. Introduce yourself to everyone that's watching the program. Sure thing, y'all. Uh, my name's Mike Pruitt. I'm a current UVA law student um, going into a career in public interest. Um, I'm also, you know, the Democratic nominee for the Board of Supervisors. It, I know you treat it like it's a dispositive thing, like it's a guarantee, but, you know, there's no off days, and we're still in kind of a, you know, God willing, the creek don't rise as far as how that election's going to come out. Um, so. I'm still doing my best to make sure I'm staying engaged with the community. Um, I also, you know, I don't try and hide this from people. Uh, I, I'm new to the community, right? Uh, I, I moved here in order to attend law school, but also because, you know, I had just gotten out of the Navy after serving eight years. Um, this was going to be the first time in my entire life that I actually had the ability to make a decision about what my home was going to be like, where I was going to live, what place I'm going to actually, you know, craft my own life in my community. And that's something that, you know, that used to be Uncle Sam's decision, and now it's mine. Um, so I took that decision really seriously. Yeah. I took that decision really seriously, and I thought about it long and hard, and this is, this is the community I chose for myself. Um, I grew up in upstate South Carolina, um, in a place that's not entirely too different. Um, you know, it, uh, it was a small town, uh, rural Appalachia, um, sitting on a, you know, a community on the creek, a little less than 3,000 people. You know, very similar, you know, you might notice to, to our own Scottsville, about half an hour from the nearest economic hub. Uh, so these are the challenges that face our community are ones that aren't unfamiliar to me. But frankly, you know, I left my hometown. I didn't have the opportunities I needed to succeed, and frankly, it wasn't always the most welcoming community. Um, that's a pretty grim alternative to be facing young people, the fact that they don't feel welcome, the fact that they feel like they're going to age out of their communities. And that's not something I want other people. That's not something I want 
young people growing up in Albemarle to be able to experience. So that's the kind of change I'm hoping to bring to this county. Uh, Mike Pruitt, um, fantastic start to the interview. You, you have made reference to a couple of these um, points that you just made on your um, opening announcement when you ran uh, or said you were going to run for supervisor and on what I thought was a, a poignant and touching um, video monologue on Twitter um, from about a month ago. I want to throw your time in the Navy um, into the spotlight and perspective. Eight years um, in the Navy? Seven, seven years and 11 months, but who's counting? Almost, almost eight years. Almost eight years. Put in perspective the time. Like, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Um, the trials and tribulations. Um, I would imagine this was fairly challenging. Um, show is yours. Sure. So um, I was a what we call a surface warfare officer. That means I led teams on board ships, and I also uh, commanded certain aspects of the ship's navigation, day-to-day operations. Uh, I was I was assigned to two different ships. Both of them ended up going to Persia Gulf in the Middle East. Um, first on a on an amphibious ship, and then on the destroyer USS Shoup. On the Shoup, we were involved in Operation Inherent Resolve when we were, you know. Uh, actively engaging ISIS forces on the ground. Um, my ship mostly did air defense guard for the carrier. Um, but, you know, challenging times. Um, the work that I was involved in on the day-to-day I thought was incredibly rewarding. And something that I really, like, deeply appreciate is the way that that kind of work teaches you to work with people. Uh-huh. It teaches you how to build consensus. It teaches you how to, like, manage up and also kind of manage manage people's concerns in a realistic way. Like the basic, like, you know, soft skills that you would want to develop, you have to develop, like, in the fire. Um, So I do very much appreciate that. And the work was very rewarding because you got to actually see the immediate consequences of what you do every day. You know, like, we put together a significant work package to repair the the CHT system. That's the the toilets on a ship. that sounds really silly, but at the end of the day, you spend a few million dollars, you put in a lot of man hours of work, and uh, suddenly people's day-to-day quality of life is significantly improved. Uh, that kind of you know, direct impact uh, on the day-to-day, uh, I found really inspiring and motivating. And the people I got to work with were amazing. Um, I will say, you know, I don't like having to be forced to move every two years, and that was kind of a central element of what I did. Um, and that was really challenging. Um, you know, I'm a... I'm a nester. I like to build community. Um, it's hard to build community when you're branded as an outsider from the beginning, and that's the brand that you're always going to have on you that you can't shake off because they know you're going to move soon. Um, so that was something I was really excited to shake off. Um, after my two tours on ships, I also um, spent three years at the Office of Naval Intelligence doing very, very different work. I was, I was a, an intelligence analyst uh, leading the team for... Middle Eastern surface tactics, um, supposed to be kind of an innocuous, uh, you know, uh, biding out your time until separation kind of job, but turns out um, our president at the time had different plans on what to do in the Middle East that suddenly made it a very important job. <laughs> um, so I uh, got to do a lot of very rewarding work that I'm really proud of that I also cannot share in any greater detail. <laughs> and we won't, we won't push you on that. Um, you're getting props already. Um, Vanessa Parkhill, um, who we have dubbed the Queen of Earliesville, has said, thank you for your service, Mike. Um, Jennifer in Crozet, Jennifer Long says, we appreciate your service, Mike. And Jerry, thank you for this opportunity to get to know this candidate who I do not know much about. So that's kind of the idea of what Mm -hmm. we're trying to do. We want to get to know Mike. Um, 
Nestor, you have an opportunity to build a nest here in Almar County. Um, I won't say exactly where. I believe down Avon Extended. I am on Avon Extended. So yep. I live right across from Peabody. Okay. Uh, if you're familiar with that little community of duplexes right yeah. at the top of Mill Creek. Fantastic. So that's a great spot close to downtown, close to uh, major roads, um, and a great place of Almaro County about 10, 15 minutes from here. Talk to us about the nest. Talk to us about uh, owning a home. I mean, putting down roots. Seems like this is maybe long term here. It is the long term. And you know, this is a uh... Not a typical path that people do when they're going to law school, especially uh, a quote-unquote fancy law school, where the whole idea is that you're opening up national uh, doors. I'm like, actually, I need to very carefully cabin myself to where my job, <laughs> my job searches. So, so, so let me let me jump in here as you maybe get a little. I think Judah wants a little closer here to the mic. Oh, so, sorry, I, I'm instinctively scooting back. Totally get, it, totally. Get it. <laughs> um, so, what you mean by that is you are going to law school at the University of Virginia, which is prestigious it has pedigree and oftentimes this experience is a trampoline or springboard to larger markets and heavy hitting salaries most of the time um, the law students some I play squash with say I want to do my time in Charlottesville and then go to a major market where I can earn some bank to cover maybe the law school debt that I got. So you, in a lot of ways, are doing the, the 180 of that. Is, that. is that the read? That's true. And, you know, I, I have to, you know, all cards on the table. Part of the reason I'm able to have uh, this kind of uh, luxury, this kind of freedom in determining what my life is going to look like is because I'm not going in with that debt um, yeah. because of my military service. Uh, Uncle Sam is footing the bill for me. Nice. Um, You've earned it. I'm incredibly grateful for it, and um, I do think, though, it kind of does draw attention to the, the economic issues that do face young people in, in our community and from outside our community. This uh, is a decision that's really made for a lot of my classmates, uh, the only way that they can, frankly, survive easily after they've incurred this amount of debt, this half a million dollars in debt is what a lot of my peers have. Um, is to leave for a major market, is to pursue, uh, pursue careers in D.C., pursue careers in uh, New York City. Um, I have the luxury to be able to carve my own path, and um, what I want to do is live in this community, um, which means working here or in Richmond, um, which is painful but doable. It's a, it's a reasonable commute. That's not a bad commute. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, Ginny Hu, thanks for the retweet on Twitter. Um, John Blair, I'll get to your question here on LinkedIn in a matter of moments. He's got a question about economic development. Um, why Almoral? Why here? I mean, like, you probably could have gone, especially with Uncle Sam footing the bill, and then your seven, almost eight years, basically eight years um, in the Navy, and obviously you're a super smart guy. I would imagine that, like, you had an opportunity for a number of law schools and a number of opportunities to nest and set up the home. Why here? So one, one really helpful thing of the Navy shipping you off to a new place every few years is that you very quickly at a very young age uh, get a sense of what it takes to make you happy. Okay. Um, what kind of communities you thrive in, where you are able to find joy. And I, you know, I, I got to live some really cool places in the Navy. Got to live in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Got to live in Virginia Beach. Got to live in, uh, like, uh, an ex-herb of Seattle. I won't okay. call it Seattle, but it was near Seattle. <laughs> um, and uh, I was able to look at what brought me joy in those communities. What, what I liked was uh, people with uh, similar interests to me, people who uh, had the kind of passion uh, for policy and for change that I had. But also, there were things about like my own upbringing that I started to miss. You know, I, I grew up 
in the shadows of the Appalachian Mountains, and there's a part of you that will always miss that. Um, there are not many places in this country that can combine those elements um, in a way that I thought would bring me joy. And this is honestly on a very, very short list of communities that, that can bring you that kind of joy, I think. Awesome. Awesome. Um, how's law school? I enjoy law school. I enjoy studying the law. Uh, you know, I, I'd uh, gotten a degree in public policy before this. Uh, From where? Uh, I went to Georgetown for a master's in public policy. Nice. Um, this guy's a smart guy right here. I do my best. Um, <laughs> but um, something I learned when I was at Georgetown is, hey, you know, uh, if you want to actually be able to do meaningful advocacy that impacts the issues that I care about, there are things that are going to stand in the way. I was doing some advocacy in Arlington County uh, around housing, specifically around um, source of income discrimination. We were trying to get the, the county to make it so that it would be illegal to deny people uh, the right to use a housing choice voucher. This is a form of discrimination that until very recently was illegal in the Commonwealth. Um, the county was unwilling to act because of Dillon's rule uh, that gives very limited authority to local governments. There's an argument to be made that this was within their authority under Dillon's rule under a handful of you know court precedents, but making that argument was a pain in the butt. We had to work with a civil rights law clinic. We had to generate an opinion, and we still then had to actually get the, the county attorney to even listen to us, which was a significant challenge. And I realized, hey, you know, if, if I want to be able to make change, I really do need to have this education for myself. I need to uh, have uh, myself equipped with the kind of legal skills um, that are needed to actually be able to function in these rooms of power. Um, so that's why I went to law school. So I'm, I, I, I would say I have an inherent, like, passionate interest in the law. Um, it's a little challenging. Cause is it as hard? You, as you might, well, I don't find school is that hard. Okay. You know, I've done a lot of hard work. Uh -huh. um, I've dealt with a lot of challenging topics. Um, I, I worked, you know, there were a lot of times I might not have been the best sailor when I was in the United States Navy, but even on my worst days, I was still working 100-hour days. Or, sorry, 100-hour weeks. 100-hour days. Yeah, I'm Superman. 100-hour <laughs> weeks? 100-hour weeks. Dang. That is not uncommon in the surface force, especially when you're underway, right? Because um, you, have, you have an eight-hour standard watch uh, every single day, every 18 hours, actually, depending on what your shift is. Um, wow. And on top of that, you still have another job, right? That's just your watch. That's not your job. So um, it, it racks up really quickly. 100-hour weeks are pretty standard in the fleet. Um, there's, I'd say there's a handful of, like, actual force management issues that are at play there. But you What's know. that mean? <laughs> um, we don't have enough people in the force. Ah, uh, gotcha. Um, we, uh, and we cover that by moving people around too quickly. Doing uh, more with less. Yes, exactly. Doing um, more with less. Would you, would you, did you enjoy, would you, if you had a DeLorean and a flux capacitor, would you have done Navy again? Would you have done it again? That's a challenging question. Um, I think the answer is yes. Because um, the opportunity cost I, was great. Yeah. Right? Um, the, it, was, it was challenging. You know, it's a hard job. I don't pretend it's not a hard job. You're committing to living in a metal box in the middle of the ocean for eight months at a time. Right. That, that's not exactly enticing to a lot of people. But I also, I mean, I got to do incredible work that I'm deeply proud of that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Um, I was able to serve my country in a way that I think was actually very meaningful uh, during some times where that was very meaningful. Um, and, you know, on a very personal level, I, I learned skills. And frankly, I paid for now th three degrees. That's, that's not nothing. That's, that's legit. Um, that's a significant, uh, you know, cost saving. So from a pure, like, financial, financial standpoint, yeah, I think it was the right decision. Um, 
And I would hope that I would be able to be you know, more successful in my Navy career if I went back with the knowledge I have now and the experience I have now. Um, Board of Supervisors. Yeah. Tell us about open-ended, then I'll ask specifics, and I got questions coming in left and right here. Tell us about the uh, platform. Sure. So, you know, I, I first decided to run um, because I, was, I came here and I immediately tried to get engaged uh, mm -hmm. on policy issues that I cared about. I had been involved in housing advocacy when I still lived in the Beltway working at O&I. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to meet my neighbors uh, doing work that I cared about. That meant doing political advocacy. So I, I joined the local NAACP. I joined the local Dems. And what very quickly I started to notice is I didn't see much advocacy going before the county around a lot of the issues that I was deeply passionate about. So my first thought is, okay, well, let's reach out to my representative. So I, I called up Supervisor Price, who's now a, a very good friend. I'm like, hey, um, these are some of my interests, and I'm not seeing many people, like, any significant channeling functions to try and get these uh, issues before you and advocate for change. And she, you know, quite honestly was like, it's because no one's doing that. Um, there's not a major, uh, that's not the kind of political character we have in this community. Um, there are not major advocacy organizations that are pushing for that right now. Um, what I can do is uh, set you up with Dr. Pethia, who, uh, who leads our housing efforts in the county. So I chatted with her, and what came to what I really came away from that is that we are facing a, a really looming crisis um, around cost of living in our community. And it's only just now dawning on us, um, and there's significant steps that we need to take in order to, to curb it before it gets completely out of control. You know, our, our median, the median cost of a single bedroom apartment in Albemarle right now is higher than it is in Richmond, which has a more robust economy than we are, a larger economy than we have. What's the, um, the ballpark? Uh, I don't have that number. I want to say 18. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, yeah. I, I try and, you know, I try and make sure I am citing a fact correctly if I'm citing a fact, sure. so I, I'm hesitant to say, but I believe it's around 18. Um, but it's higher than it is in Richmond. It's higher than it is in Virginia Beach. It's higher than it is here in Charlottesville. That that really challenges belief, uh, but the reason is uh, they're investing in housing in a more significant way in Charlottesville. We're uh, uh, not investing in the same degree that our peers are, and it's starting to show. Um, we also, you know, we have higher levels of rent burden than um, rent burden. I should take a step back. This is like policy speak. Um, rent burden is when you um, are spending more than a third of your income on your rent. Okay. Um, so if you're rent burdened, then you are spending too much money on rent because that's the position you're forced into. We have greater rent burden than most of Northern Virginia. That is, that is insane. That should really uh, galvanize us into action as a community. Uh, Arlington County, Virginia, Alexandria, uh, the city of Alexandria, Virginia, both of those have greater degrees of rent burden than Albemarle County, which has you know, significant uh, uh, developable land. And even within our identified and allocated development areas, we still have you know, really egregious lack of infill. We, uh, we are not making the best use of, of the resources we have, and we're not investing in the degrees that we need to be in order to actually house a community that's growing like ours is. Um, great answer. Um, Derek Bond, I'm going to get to your question here. Um, I'm going to ask one first, and then I'll get to questions from viewers and listeners. So if you have a question for the gentleman who is going to be the supervisor, Almaro County, on, July, on January 1 for a four-year term in the Scottsville District, put it in the feed. It's got to embody the golden rule. We don't mind a challenge, but it's going to come from a position of respect. Do we... 
All right, I'm choosing my words carefully here. I think you are in a very unique position when you're going to be on the board because you're going to be coming in with an ideology and a mindset that is going to be, frankly, um, an ideology and mindset that's very different than the board has seen maybe in decades, if not generations. Um, you're coming in with the mindset of youth. You're coming in with a mindset that is not deep-pocketed from a wealth standpoint. You're not a retiree. You know, you're... you're, you're pursuing your professional career right now as an attorney. Um, you've already kind of indicated you're not necessarily motivated by stacks of paper, and I mean stacks of paper, you know, earning large chunks of money and salaries here. Um, you seem to be one that's motivated by, you know, uh, leaving the world in a better place than when you first arrived. Maybe why you joined the Navy. Maybe why you did the work in D.C. and Northern Virginia. Why you're getting into a, a job with the Board of Supervisors that's going to take 40 or 50 hours of your time and pay you $17,000 a year, roughly. I mean, literally. Like, this is below minimum wage. This guy's about to do for four years in his prime earning window. Right? In his prime earning window. So here's the question I have for you. How does this mindset that has probably been so unique to the Board of Supervisors. I couldn't tell you the last time we've had a mindset like this that is density, pro-housing density in Almoral County, right? I think that's fair. Um, a mindset that is undoubtedly championing the tenant and those living on the financial margin. Okay, that's, that's fair. I'm right? agreeing with you. I'm nodding along. 100% <laughs> fair. Um, how is this mindset going to invigorate the board potentially? And then how can it coexist? You have five other peers, six mm -hmm. total. How can that coexist where the political capital in these other districts may not suggest this is the mindset that Almoral County constituents or voters or taxpayers or residents want on the Board of Supervisors? So I want to begin by lightly pushing back and challenging sure. some of those assumptions. I, I do think um, that the members of our board are also social justice motivated people. Okay. I think these are issues that they all care about and share. Uh -huh. um, if I were to draw uh, um, a strong distinction between my approach uh, and theirs, which uh, you know I don't think is that strong. I, I do think we, we share so many of our beliefs. The strongest distinction I would draw is whether or not we're looking at county government, at, at the role of being an elected supervisor as a steward or a change maker. Okay. Um, we have someone whose job is to be a steward uh, uh, and a responsible, you know, person maintaining status quo in the county. And that's the county executive. His job is to keep the train on the tracks. His Jeff job, Richardson. Yeah. A, an extraordinarily talented person at his job. Um, I hear nothing but positive things about him from literally everyone who mentions his name. We live in the same neighborhood. <laughs> Good to hear. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's the supervisor's job. The supervisor's job, you know, there's a reason that these roles are elected. There's a reason that these roles are political. Um, that's because we're supposed to be pulling in ideas that we have gathered from the community. That means we're supposed to be representing and reflecting frustrations from the community. Um, that means we have to be the people who are actually introducing change and innovation into the community. Uh, innovation, I do believe, needs to begin with our electeds. Um, maybe that is an opinion that's shared by the current members of the board. Um, I have nothing but respect for the current members of the board, but that's... When we look at the last several decades of, of Albemarle's behavior, I worry that we don't always embody the kind of change that uh, reflects our values. Um, 
this is, again, a central part of what really motivated me to run for office is because I see a community that does believe in, uh, in tenant protections, that does believe in, like you were saying, you know, supporting the most vulnerable members of our community, that does believe in uh, investing deeply in affordable housing. These are all things that, uh, you know, every door I knock, these are things that people agree on. Uh, and this is something that I feel like we're all saying. And it's not something that we're living and realizing through policy. Um, and that, I think, is, is concerning to me. And that's what I would say is uh, the, the biggest distinction that I would draw between myself and uh, what you described as the current way of doing business. I do hope to be someone who is embodying change. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I spent a long time working in rooms that are uh, full of people who are very different than myself. You know, uh, I come from a blue-collar family, and I'm also... Uh, I'm also a queer person, uh -huh. and I served for seven years, for eight years in the Navy. You can believe that there are a lot of rooms that I was very different than the people who were around me. Um, you're in the officer corps. You're around a lot of people who are seventh generation officer corps. That ain't me. You're in uh, the United States military. You're around a bunch of, uh, uh, I would say, aggressively straight people. Uh -huh. That's not me. Um, so I'm used to being able to work with people who are, are different than me, who might be coming from a different perspective than me, and still getting uh, the results that a community, that, that our stakeholders, that the people of Albemarle need. Um, those are skills that I've developed. Uh, I, I like to think also, I, I realize it sounds like I'm coming in with an agenda, and uh, I fully recognize that there's so many things that I don't know and don't understand. And there's a wealth of experience on our current board. Um, the, the decades of experience, uh, that means something. Those are people who have a lot of expertise. And I try and uh, be someone who is incredibly open to learning from the expertise and the experience. You know, um, uh, Supervisor Price has been an invaluable mentor uh, to me during, uh, during the last year. I've learned so much from her, and Frank, I've told her, she's like, you know, I'm going to, uh, once you're in office, I'm going to have to take a step back. I'm not going to be knocking on your door to tell you what you should do. There's got to be no dead hand guidance, and I'm like, no, Donna, 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 Donna. <laughs> I need to be able to call you at midnight when I'm stressed out and you tell me, uh, you give me some best advice and be able to use you as a sounding board, because this kind of experience uh, is deeply valuable, and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm humble enough to admit that these are folks who, who know more about a lot of these issues than I do. I'm not going to pretend that's otherwise. And I think, uh, you know, leaning into that is something that helps you build consensus and work together. Respect, respect. I'll get to, I'll get to the comments here and questions, guys. I'll throw this to you. Um, here's the makeup of the current board. Uh, Diantha McKeel, who's come on this program, is in the middle of her third term. So we're talking third term, she's going to be on the Board of Supervisors for 12 straight years. Ann Malik, and I, I want to get this right here, Supervisor Malik watches the program. We hear from her, so we've got to make sure we get this right. Supervisor Malik is in the middle of her, let's see, she's been on the Board of Supervisors since 2007. Neil Williamson's watching the program. Give me the exact number here. Is it her fourth or fifth term for Ann Malik? Ned got... I think it's her fourth that she's running for now, but I might be mistaken if anyone wants to holler. Yeah, at Neil will correct us. The president <laughs> of the Free Enterprise Forum is watching here. You have multiple media outlets watching in this show right now. Diantha McKeel is going to be on the board for 12 straight years when this term is over. Ann Malik is going to be on the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors, and she's running for re-election right now for, good Lord, so when her 
if she, she's the favorite to win because she's the incumbent, that would mean four years start on January 1 of 2024 and then would run through 2028. She first got on the board in 2007. That means Ann Malik will be on the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors for 21 straight years. Ned Galloway's in his second term. B. Lapisto currently is running for her second term. I guess this is the point I'm making. Um, the political capital and the voters of Albemarle County are electing supervisors, Supervisor Malik, Supervisor McKeel, Supervisor Galloway. I would imagine B. Lapisto currently, is, she's got the biggest challenge in TJ Fadley, who's going to join us on the program tomorrow. Um, but they're electing folks that want to keep the comprehensive plan, which is a, a guide to density in housing and commercial development, very limited. 5% of Albemarle County is currently allocated for residential and commercial development, 5%. And of that 5%, not all that 5% has the topography for actual development. We had Diantha sit, Supervisor McKeel, love you, Supervisor McKeel, sit in that chair right next to you, and she said, I have no interest, literally said this on a microphone, in a camera, looking at the viewers and listeners, I have no interest in expanding the, the comprehensive plan, the developmental area, from the 5% until that 5% is at maximum capacity and we're nowhere near it. And then she rattled off a number of shopping centers on Route 29 that are sitting vacant, that are almost like ghost town-esque. Here's the question I have for you. While the affordability or housing affordability, the, the phrase has changed from affordable housing to now housing affordability. <laughs> um, and now I'm also seeing the phrase of housing affordability being changed or rebranded, rebranded again to workforce housing. Mm -hmm. It's literally, in, in five, three years, had different brands and monikers. So the question, I'll stop talking here. Does the supervisor, do the, does the political capital in this county, one of the most affluent ones in the Commonwealth, even suggest housing density or housing affordability? Or are the folks that vote for these elections basically homeowners themselves, and they say, if we limit the supply and limit the density, we're just going to get massive equity, and we will get the gains while creating a proverbial gate around Almar? Um, I think the answer to that is, uh, is both and, okay. right? Okay. Um, uh, I think most folks in Albemarle who we talk to are going to tell you that they desperately want more housing affordability. They want their, their kids, they want their grandma to be able to remain in their community with them. Um, at the same time, I think everyone uh, feels a little unhappy when they see the mountainside uh, that's right across from them get bulldozed and developed. Um, this creates obviously a, a fundamental contradiction in terms. Yes, um, and that's I'm not what I want to talk about. I'm not going to pretend that that's not true. And uh, I do think there's a lot of wisdom in what Diantha says. Um, I don't think it's prudent to never say never regarding the the um, the current uh, land that is not set aside as development area. Um, but I do think we're we're putting the cart before the horse and we're ignoring the reasons. That, um, that our development area is not adequately uh, infilled and doesn't have the kind of density that we would expect. You know, our comprehensive plan says that this is supposed to be a urban area, uh, the places that we identify as, uh, as development areas. You walk around them, they certainly don't feel that way. Plenty of them are, you know, single-family homes on an acre, half an acre. Um, some of them are undeveloped entirely. Um, and on top of that, uh, when, you, when you look at these communities, um, and you actually look at the land use map underlying them, uh, we are not, 
we're not taking actions that feel like they're consistent with our own stated policy. Um, it's hard to say that we're dedicating this as uh, the place where we're going to house an entire community of over 100,000 people when the development area has things like R1 zoning, um, which significant tracks of it do. Um, I think we need to make, and this is something our developers uh, come to us all the time, like it is challenging to make the pro forma on a, on a proposed development actually make sense at a price point that can house people if you don't have meaningful investment from the county, that's one, but also if you, uh, if you have to go through a two-year-long buzzsaw process that doesn't even have uh, a guaranteed outcome at the end. Um, I think there's significant opportunities for streamlining uh, processing in, uh, in the zoning uh, code for how we actually manage the development area. And there's also um, a significant opportunity to uh, improve the kind of incentives and uh, the strength of our housing fund. We currently, you know, our housing fund as it sits right now is funded almost entirely through uh, developer offsets that are negotiated during, uh, during zoning uh, reviews. Um, that means it's basically impossible to take in new affordable units faster than we're building unaffordable units. That's just the way the funding is structured. Um, the only other time that we get uh, input into our housing fund is normally through ad hoc infusions for specific projects. Um, that means we have uh, a fund that the final amount that we're going to spend on any kind of project is, is somewhat uncertain because it's going to be ad hoc and because it's going to be coming from developer inputs. Um, you know, you're a, your background is in realty, right? Um, this would be like- Real estate ownership. Yeah. Imagine if you were counseling someone, oh yeah, go, go try and buy, buy a house and don't get a pre-approval. Don't let them know what your budget is. Um, just go in and say, well, I'm a real estate uh, investor, or I'm an investment banker and I've got great credit. So like, let's start shopping. That's going to have them run the books on you. Um, this is really how we go about development because the actual budget it isn't set because we don't have dedicated annual investments into a housing trust fund. Um, a housing trust fund is part of the current housing Albemarle plan and it needs to be realized as soon as possible. This is going to let us better leverage the capital that we do invest into housing. It's going to let us invest predictable amounts into housing so that we can actually better leverage it, so that we can actually come in and say this is our uh, anticipated budget and this is what we're going to be working with. It lets us do the actual kind of long-range planning that we're currently lacking. Uh, it's more currently bailing out, a, bailing out the boat as far as uh, how we do housing affordability, and it's not actually building a more sustainable boat, which is what we should be doing. Um, all right, I'm getting to questions, too. They're coming in so fast right now. Okay, they're coming Good so fast. Hear. First, let's go to um, who we call Anonymous, a.k.a. the I Love Seville Network's version of Deep Throat. He's watching in Bozeman, Montana right now. Mm -hmm. um, he says this, and it's a few um, comments. He says, uh, Mike, if you look at the households with at least one full-time employee, the percentage of households that are rent burden in the Almoro County uh, Puma, there are two Pumas that cover it. It's 25%. In Richmond, it's 31%. He says, um, consider the data here, um, especially as a policy analyst. And he suggests, uh, offers Fairfax County is 29%. Prince William is 35%. Um, he also has given you props, though. He says, I do appreciate that Mr. Pruitt, at least from his website, is not just about build, 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 but understands the need to be intentional about building affordable housing. And then he says, if you look just at non-student households, our area's two Pumas, the Thomas Jefferson uh, Planning District North and the TJPC Southeast, are third and 20th 
out of 53 Pumas in Virginia in terms of percentage of households that are rent burden, he says we are much better than average. And finally, he says Albemarle County produces housing at eight units per 1,000 residents per year, which is 2.5x the U.S. national average. Um, the Commonwealth of Virginia is 2.2. Then it gives you props on the land and housing trust idea. So I know who Deep Throat is. I've sworn his identity to you know secrecy here. Um, he is a high-level finance macro guy. Mm-hmm. So the stats and numbers are his. What's the word? Is it Bellywick? Bellywick? Bailiwick. Bailiwick. Thank you, Judah Wickhauer. Thank you, Mike Pruitt. Um, so I want to throw that to you. Uh-huh. Um, this from Ginny Who on Twitter. Then we'll go to Neil Williamson, Derek Ba. Good Lord. The questions are... This is good. This is good. The yeah. community is getting to know you here. Um, Ginny Who wants to know this. Does Mr. Pruitt... You're getting Mr. Pruitt. I like it. Does Mr. Pruitt support parental rights, including but not limited to educational and medical decisions? What a strange question. I would like her to actually tease that into what specific policy uh, she is actually referring to. Um, I would um, imagine it's in terms of education. Now, I, this is what I think you may say, and I'm going to push back on it, so I want to jump in before you say it. I understand the Board of Supervisors is not involved in education. That's a school board decision. But the Board of Supervisors is allocating the funding to the school board to determine, uh, for the school board to determine how it's going to allocate said money. So the Board of Supervisors does have a say in education. Although, a peripheral say. I, I think it's fair to say that the Board of Supervisors has a significant role in education. Um, I don't think the decisions on what our, what it sounds like uh, this viewer is alluding to are, are current LGBT-affirming policies in the schools. Uh, that is not something that implicates the Board of Supervisors whatsoever. Um, it's something I've spoken on because it's something that I do feel I have a unique perspective as someone who has actually come out in our public schools and knows what that process looks like. Um, and that was part of, I know, the the footage that you've shared on the here The Twitter before. thread. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I do believe, and I continue to believe, that the perspectives that have been shared by um, Dr. Scalia Bryce are, are fundamentally dangerous. I think they put young people at risk. And I, I celebrate the current uh, policies that we have in place. That being said, that's not my decision, Bailiwick to borrow your phrase. That's not something I'm going to be deciding on. So frankly, if it's something that people are going to be asking me about uh, at the doors, that's fine. But you can also be asking me my favorite color. It's orange. Um, It has just as much bearing on what kind of influence I'm going to be able to uh, exert on the board. Uh, If you do want to talk about education, uh, that's something I'd love to talk about. As far as I see it, there's two key ways um, that I have a responsibility to make sure that we're fully dedicating ourselves to uh, Albemarle students. That's our capital improvement plan, the actual you know, finances that we use to build and improve facilities for our schools, and also just cost of living. Um, we have, uh, it's no shock to anyone, the very first time when, uh, before I'd even decided that I was going to run, I made a commitment to knock 500 doors just to talk to people in the neighborhood and see what kind of opinions were top of mind. And I was doing this you know, in August uh, of last year. Uh, I started early. Yeah, um, respect. I was knocking doors in August to try and make sure I even uh, understood what my neighbors cared about. And boy howdy, by far the number one thing people were talking about 
Can you guess in August what people were talking about? Of this past year? I would say it was at bus driver transportation. It was bus drivers and transportation yeah. and the shortage and the, uh, the routes that were changing and the students who were getting to, to school late. Now, this is a complicated process, and I think our current board has done a lot of the important steps that I would want to see to try and stymie that kind of... Um, that kind of shortage. But there's a significant role that the Board of Supervisors also plays in that, and that's keeping uh, this community a place where you can actually live as a bus driver. I spoke with someone during this time uh, on at his door who was a bus driver, and he, um, he was very honest. He's like, the only reason I'm able to live here is... Um, is because I'm retired. I did this for some extra spending money while I'm, you know, uh, retiring to be close to my daughter. Um, if you are trying to commute from Nelson County, Buckingham, yeah. yeah, this is a miserable job to be someone who's commuting because you basically have a three-hour shift in the early morning, right. and you have a three-hour shift in the afternoon. And what do you got to do in the meantime? Are you got to drive all the way back to Buckingham? Are you going to have a sandwich and then maybe take a shower because you've been sweating in a hot car, yelling at kids who yeah. are behaving off the walls? Um, it, it, it's a miserable job. So I think, uh, you know. A key part of this is making it so that people can actually live on their routes, uh, so that people can actually afford uh, the cost of living to, to live in the community that they're serving. Uh, the other key part of this, you know, uh, is is our assessments. Um, you know, before I was here, uh, about a decade and a half ago, um, we significantly cut our assessments. Um, and with that came basically stopping in the ground all capital improvements throughout the county uh, and killing a lot of programs in the ground. Um, that kind of... Yep. Does that pick up? Yeah. Oh, that picks up. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> we are right next to the police station, and the, uh, the fire um, house is right around the corner, so we have this often. Um, they just drove by. That was Charlottesville's finest is the police. What is the, the fire truck, the firefighters? Bravest. Charlottesville's bravest just drove by. Yeah. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. You were, we're talking, talking about, about assessments and capital sure. improvements. So uh, that, that meant that we completely killed uh, all our long-term planning for our schools. That means we have not built new school infrastructure in well over a decade. Um, I am walking distance from Mountain View, and I see every day that kids over there are learning in trailers. We have six-digit median incomes here in this community. This is a wealthy community. It should be, it should be a point of tremendous shame that we have kids who are learning in trailers in our community. Um, and that's because we have not done the kind of meaningful capital improvement plan that we need. Uh, this is something that the current board has taken, I think, tremendous leadership in trying to offset uh, that kind of generational disinvestment. And there's a significant capital improvement plan. Um, in, the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, you know, we have a constitutional limit on uh, how much we can invest in uh, this kind of long-term financing. You can't spend more than 10% of, um, of your overall annual revenues on debt servicing. That puts a really low ceiling on what kind of actual capital improvements you can do. And on top of that, if you get close to that 10%, all your creditors are going to say, well, heck, he's getting real close to his constitutional limit. Um, I'm going to downgrade him. You're talking bond ratings. I am talking bond ratings. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and you don't want to flirt with a downgraded bond rating. Is that's, basically what he's saying. We're we're very lucky to have a AAA credit rating, and right. that helps us actually get more bang from our buck when we're doing these kinds of investments. But right now, uh, for this real generational reinvestment in our schools, uh, building Center Two to expand our technical education opportunities to make sure we're able to continue to be competitive in a modern marketplace. Uh, 
expanding, uh, uh, building a new school in the southern feeder pattern, that is really flirting with our, with our limit. Um, if we take a step back, if we try and cut our assessments at this moment, what's going to happen is there is no way you can actually, you can do targeted funding cuts to our current revenue stream as much as you want. You can bend over backwards to make sure you're somehow not touching the 60% that we have for our schools, and you will still, if you try and cut assessments right now, uh, you will still result in having to stop one of these projects dead in its tracks because it will take our revenues to the point where we're no longer uh, under that 10% threshold. There is no way to cut assessments right now that doesn't result in us killing a school plan dead in the water. So I, I do think we have, uh, frankly, a moral responsibility uh, on this issue. Um, wow. You're, we're 45 minutes in. Um... You mentioned Dr. Meg Bryce. She is watching the program now. Questions are coming in from, um, or comments are coming in about your statement about Dr. Bryce. Um, Allison Spillman, is Allison watching the program now? Let me check. Um, someone comment or tag Allison's to see if she is watching. Um, so I'll throw this to you. We played this footage from your Twitter, um, your Twitter account. You did... And I, and I respect it because we create content and it was it's tough to create content, especially on a platform on Twitter, because they limit the time of how long the video could be. I should add, it wasn't designed for Twitter. It was, uh, I have a much larger follower base on, uh, on meta platforms, yeah. uh, so on Facebook. It was 100% a Facebook video. Yeah. Um, I was just like, eh. I'll put it on Twitter so Jerry can see it. Yeah, and then you chopped it up. And then you <laughs> I chopped did it have up. to chop it you up. You had to chop it up because they <laughs> limit the time. One suggestion you could do is you could utilize Periscope to do longer form content on Twitter. That's what we do, and that's how our show airs in totality on Twitter. Um, but that's just technical advice there. This is, Made I'll, a note. This is what you did. This, and I gave you props, and then I picked it apart. Uh, I gave you props in that you... Basically, I think in a lot of ways, this was the first time Albemarle County realized that um, you were queer. You, you literally did a, a Twitter thread of video where you said, this is my sexuality. This was my experience growing up. This is what would have happened if I had mentioned to a teacher in my initial hometown, um, uh, you know, and how my parents could have responded. And then you went to, you moved to, a, if memory serves correctly, you moved to another town. Right, and when you moved to another town, it was more welcoming um, for you. Jude and I were talking about this, and I was like, "This guy is courageous to let still a town in the south. We're in the south of the Mason-Dixon line, right? Especially before an election in November. Now, granted, at that time you're running unopposed, um, and you let everyone know that you were gay. And I was like, "Props, respect. I, I could care less." I think most people could care less, right? People could care less. And then you utilize that as a segue to get political with Allison Spillman and Dr. Meg Bryce. Bryce is watching now. I believe Spillman's been tagged and is watching. And you sprung, and I'm going to stop talking and throw mm -hmm. it to you. you. You sprung into why Dr. Bryce's rhetoric or Dr. Bryce's platform, platform's a better term, was potentially... Um, damaging or creating an unsafe environment for the LGBTQ plus student when they interact with their teachers 
and you mentioned that that interaction with the LGBTQ student with their teacher should not be then passed along to their parents at their house. That's mm -hmm. what Ginny Hu is referencing on Twitter. Yep. Um, I thought the first part of the announcement, and you know, I'm, I feel I'm being fair here. Uh, the first part of the announcement was, dude, so courageous, and I had so much effing respect for. And I was like, this guy has got chutzpah and, and, and courage. And then I felt it got a little bit. I don't want to use the word disingenuous, but it got a little bit, it got political. And then it was like, I'm letting folks know I'm queer, and then I'm going to tell folks because I'm queer why these two candidates, why one's better than the other. That's where I had beef with it. Anywhere you want to go on this. So I don't think the thing that defines me and the thing that I lead with is my sexuality. Okay. I think I'm a, I'm a pretty interesting person regardless of my sexuality. For sure. I try to be at least. Yes. <laughs> um, I agree. Uh, I think it's always helpful to uh, lean on one's uh, lived experience when it is helpful for informing something. Um, and I also think it's important to say that to be a queer person in America is to have your life made a political object. That is not something that queer people in America can escape. Uh, it follows you. It is the definition that is put on you by others, not one that you put on yourself. Uh, this this uh, this post that you're talking about, this um, you know, ad, um, was always 100% uh, a political discussion. It's me talking about uh, an issue that sincerely affects a lot of students in our community, a lot of parents in our community, a lot of teachers in our community, uh, and I was to inform that as best I could uh, as someone who does not have decision-making power in the, in the schools. Uh, I talked about my own lived experience in a way that I think deeply informs that. I think the, um, you know, I, I watched your show. I thought it was very clear that y'all had a, uh, a good time with that show. You seem to enjoy yourself. I try um, every show. <laughs> every show. Um, I think that's why people watch. I think, I think you're right. But I think it is helpful. Something you pointed out was that, well, if my kid came out, if one of my two kids came yeah, out to two me, sons. Um, I would embrace and love and celebrate them. And I think it's important to, to catch when I'm talking about my own ex story, my own experience uh, coming out. My parents did accept and love me from the jump. Uh, it was not something that was uh, really even up for debate. These were people who were... Uh, affirming people. It's still terrifying. It's still something that threatens people's mental health. Uh, and also, you know, that is a luxury that, that your boys have. That's a luxury that I had. That's not a luxury that everyone has. And I don't think it's appropriate that we make a blanket rule uh, facing our teachers that require them to out students. Um, because people learn their student sexual... If you spend every day around a kid and you're in uh, their social sphere, right? Um, school is the child's social sphere. That's where they're learning how to become themselves. Um, you're going to learn things about them that their parents don't because they're, they're, they're exploring their own identity. They're learning who they are. Um, I don't think... I don't think the appropriate thing to do is to put kids at risk in the way that the policies that Dr. Bryce advances would undoubtedly put people at risk. Um... This is good. This is meaningful. This is real conversation. Um, I've got a two-part question for you. And then we'll head to the next topic. Would you have made the same announcement 
about your sexuality if I was still running in this race, if you had opposition, knowing that the Scottsville district is conservative in two, vote, two of its three voting precincts? Town of Scottsville, very conservative. Glenmore, the neighborhood I live in, fairly conservative. Mill Creek, where you live in, um, the ideology, very similar to the city of Charlottesville. So two of the three voting blocks lean conservative. The first part of the question, if you had competition, specifically me, would you, and genuinely, give me a genuine answer here, would you genuinely have done that Twitter thread about your sexuality? And then the second part of the question, do you think your perspective may change or may be shaped differently when or if you choose to have children, adopt children, whatever it may be? Because what I found is I'm 40, how old am I, 41? My mindset is completely different now that I have, my wife and I have a five-year-old and an eight-month-old than before our boys were born. I'm a completely different man. I routinely cry on this program mm -hmm. when oftentimes, Mike, I would have had the emotional uh, makeup of a stone or a rock or a caveman as my wife likes to describe it. Um, the, my boys changed me. So it's a two-part question. Would you have made the announcement about sexuality if I was still in the race? And the second part of the question is, would your mindset change differently about communication with teachers and parents when it comes to LGBTQ issues at school if you had kids or adopting children of your own? Uh, so I'll, I'll take those both in turn. Uh, I would not represent myself any differently than I have today. Um, I'm a pretty open book in my, in my personal life and in my professional life. Uh, I am not someone who tries to hide facts about myself uh, from anyone. Um, so that wouldn't have changed. Would I have done the video? Probably not, because I'd be more busy running my own campaign. This was something I did for Allison uh, to try and highlight a completely different race. Um, if I was fighting my own race, maybe I would be uh, fighting my own race. Um, to your other point, um, I'm not going to sit here and, uh, you know, navel gaze over how I might behave in five, ten years. Um, I will say I think there's plenty of people who, um, who do care deeply about their children and whose lives have been changed by their children who still uh, vehemently oppose uh, the kind of dangerous policies that Dr. Bryce advances. Uh, a very easy example to point to is, is Alison Spillman. Alison Spillman had a very successful and rewarding career in the private sector. Um, she had children. She then adopted uh, children. And she has changed her fundamental life's work. Um, and she is not accepting these policies. You cannot find a person who is more, uh, you know, doggedly protective of the interests of her kids because, boy, howdy, she's running a pretty vicious race uh, because she believes in uh, the experience of her kids in our public schools. Um, and that has not changed her opinion on this issue. And it's, uh, you know, it's an issue that uh, affects her pretty directly. I think, okay, respect. I'll go to the next topic. Um, I think this was certainly with, within what I promised of fair questions. Um, I think the two most competitive races in the November election are going to be B. Lepisto Kirtley and T.J. Fadley in the Rivanna District for the Board of Supervisors. And also the second or probably the most competitive race will be the general election for school board uh, with Allison Spillman and Dr. Mag Bryce. Um, outside of that, I think all the other races are slam dunks. Um, and by slam dunks, I mean heavily um, tilted toward the Democratic or the Democratic Party side. Um, so we will follow Bryce versus Spillman, at-large seat, school board closely, 
and Lepisto, Kurtley, and TJ Fadley closely, Rymana District Board of Supervisors. TJ Fadley on the show tomorrow at 1230. More comments coming in. Neil Williamson watching the program. I'm going to get to his comments. Uh, Neil Williamson says, Mr. Pruitt is correct that Almore County Board of Supervisors chose to cut its tax rate during the time of great unpleasantness. That's the depression or recession. This required cuts in planned capital spending. He also says Mr. Pruitt is incorrect to say assessments were cut. They were not. Per state code, assessments must reflect market value on January 1 of the tax year. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil Williamson I did misspeak on that. Thank you, Neil. Yeah. Neil also has a handful of other comments. He is the president of the uh, Free Enterprise Forum. You have, I, I see the Times Dispatch watching the program here. Um, he says, does, my, does uh, Mr. Pruitt consider Arlington County to be a leader in affordable housing? What did you learn in this advocacy effort, effort in, Almar- in uh, Arlington County? Um, first off, I'd say yes. Uh, Arlington County has a really robust and thriving um, affordable housing trust fund that has been able to significantly expand their accessible workforce housing. Uh, Arlington has... Uh, some really challenging housing issues facing them. They're, you know, experiencing all the bleed over from from D.C. They're experiencing a lot of new investments that's bringing a lot of very high earners that's driving up the cost of housing. And they have a very tight geographic footprint. They're about the same size as Charlottesville. Um, that makes it really hard to build housing in Arlington, and they're they're doing pretty well. They're also exploring a lot of, I think, really valuable changes to their zoning with their uh, exploration of missing middle. Um, I think there's a lot more that could be done, uh, just like I think there's a lot more that could be done everywhere. Um, as to the other question, what did I learn? I, I think we learn from every experience how to do the next one better, right? Um, uh, I think there were uh, something that I really took away from that is the fundamental just intransigence of local government in um, in Virginia, and I think that's not pointing to any. That's not pointing fingers at any individual person. That's the way we have structured government in in Virginia. We have we're a strong Dillon Rule state. That means you have a fundamental chilling effect that touches every single order of business. Um, we have very limited authorities about what we can actually do in local government, and then on top of that, because you have such limited authority, you're frankly you have uh, you are encouraged to. Uh, do less than what you're allowed to do because you don't want to uh, encounter a position where suddenly the county's being sued um, for overstepping its bounds. So that means like, not only do we have limited authority, but we're exercising even less authority than we have because when you get closer to those edge cases, there's a fundamental trepidation that comes in. Um, I think on top of that, you have a lot of part-time uh, governments, uh, people who are you know burning the sticks at both ends, and that significantly impacts um, the way that local governments can actually step up to engage problems. Uh, and this is something I saw firsthand when I first started doing advocacy um, in, in Arlington, and it's something that I think my experience has shown me is a pretty consistent truism in Virginia local government, which is, I mean, really a damn shame. We want our local governments to be able to actually do the things that affect us locally um, and uh, you know deliver the kind of policy interventions that make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and it, it is challenging in our constitutional paradigm. Um, thank you for that answer. Let's go, guys. We'll go 12 minutes more with Supervisor Candidate Mike Pruitt of the Scottsville District. 
this gentleman will be on the board here. It's a $400 plus million dollar yearly budget. Uh, one of six people that will be allocating a $400 plus million dollar budget. Um, John Blair on LinkedIn, he's an Almoral County resident. John, you are, and I'm not going to try to um, dox where you live here, I think it's Samuel Miller District, because I used to live in the neighborhood. Samuel Miller District, so that's Jim Andrews' district. He was the um, replacement, or he ran unopposed. Liz Palmer was previously the supervisor in the Samuel Miller District, now Jim Andrews. Interestingly, um, Ned Galloway ran unopposed in the Rio District. Diantha McKeel ran unopposed in the uh, Jack Jewett District. Um, Mike is running unopposed. Um, so for those that have issues with, with anything, my advice would be run. I mean, it's not going to happen now, but for future races, if you got beef, get in the mix. John Blair says this, and he does not have beef. It's just a question about economic development. Thank you for hosting this show, JM. I have a question for Mr. Pruitt on economic development. Should Albemarle County look to acquire a large portion of property and develop a business commerce park to locate various enterprises? If not, what is a better vision of the county's economic development strategy? So I'll start by saying, this sounds like such a politician answer. I'm not going to answer that directly because I would need to see a significant amount of data on what uh, the actual predicted uh, flows for that are. Um, that's, that's a very open-ended hypothetical. Um, but I appreciate the direction it's going. Um, I think there's, you're always incurring a significant amount of risk if you're trying to use uh, public money uh, to prepare something to, for development when you don't have actual investors identified. Uh, so at least on that level in the hypothetical, I think that's messy. Um, if we're talking about economic development in Albemarle County, I think it's important to remember what it takes to make a community competitive for investors. Um, we have a lot of those things. We have, you know, a trained workforce. We have a beautiful uh, community that people want to live in. But there's a lot of ways that I don't think we're doing ourselves any favors when it comes to being competitive for major business investments. Um, and, you know, competitive factors that people are going to be considering when they're deciding whether or not to locate, you know, a significant amount of capital and workforce uh, to our community is going to be like, hey, what is the cost of living in that community? Am I going to have to actually increase their wages significantly just to be able to afford there because if I have to make that kind of cut uh, as a business I might not be wanting to deploy uh, operations there. I'm also going to be wondering what is the housing supplier? My people going to be struggling to even find a location to live um, when they move there? Am I going to have you know the kind of transit connections that I would want to be able to support my business? Um, am I going to have uh, a groundswell of technical education? Am I going to have you know replacement uh, replacement uh, tech uh, human capital to actually fill new roles over time. Um, those are all things I think we need to invest in significantly. We need to invest in housing in order to bring down the cost of living to make ourselves more competitive for economic development. We need to invest in our transit to make it so that this is a place where people can actually you know, live and work and commute to work uh, in ways that actually make economic sense for them and also for their employer. And it means we have to invest like very deeply in our technical education and apprenticeships in order to actually have the skills that we need for a competitive workforce that people will actually want to locate capital here and actually invest in our community. So respect that. I'll unpack that and I'll get to some more comments. Eight, eight minutes, guys. And then I got my, quinti my typical Tuesday 145 call with the VIP client. Um, 
I literally was having this conversation when trying to broker a business deal between two parties this morning. Albemarle County, City of Charlottesville, seems to have, or it's heading in the direction, it is heading in the direction of, of two types of residents. The resident that is significant six-figure salary, deep-pocketed, maybe time tied to finance, University of Virginia, science, technology, engineering, math. Good Lord, the data science school on Ivy Road is going to have a humongous impact that I don't think people truly understand. I know you do, but I don't think people generally truly understand. Paul Manning's Biotech Institute also tied to UVA. UVA is straight up telling us this is going to be two to 3,000 new jobs for this area at six-figure high salaries. We got data science school that's going to create a new data science ecosystem, the Biotech Institute that's going to create a new economic ecosystem. Both those economic ecosystems, I bet you, are five to 6,000 new jobs, heavy six-figure jobs. You got a boatload of private equity, a boatload of hedge funds, and a boatload of family offices in Charlottesville and Almoral County. And you got got the University of Virginia that literally is going to expand enrollment with students that have ties to their parents and and them covering cost of living here. It looks like to me, Almoral County and Charlottesville and the city of Charlottesville over the next five years, maybe 10 years, it's going to have two types of people super wealthy, six figure heavy hitters. And then those that are on the financial margin that are in the service industry or servicing the heavy hitters. The middle class is literally being whittled down like a number two pencil in the city of Charlottesville or Almar County here. Talk to me about that economic dynamic and how we can potentially strengthen a middle class because you know, I know, Judah knows, economies are only as strong as the middle class. And right now, that niche or stratosphere is going away. I, um, I think that diagnosis of our community is uh, tragically accurate. Um, uh, a more, uh, a slightly less generous take I've heard that I have a few disagreements with is that we're becoming a, a, a retirement community with the university attached. Um, I think that's exaggerating the point slightly, but I take the point it's making. Um, building middle class means actually making it a community that has the kind of jobs that it takes to support a middle class. That means things that rely on uh, strong technical education. Something I'm a huge champion of is is technical education and registered apprenticeships specifically. Um, I think that means making sure we are actually uh, fighting to make sure that the people can actually live on those kinds of salaries. Um, and also a place that people can grow old uh, if they've lived on their salaries uh, like that. So you have people who have lived a successful middle class life their whole life and they have a home in Albemarle that has maybe increased significantly in value because they, they managed to get in while the getting was good, right? Um, maybe they worked uh, in fabrication or in HVAC and they own a, a valuable home. Um, maybe they're entering their 70s right now, right? Uh, what does that person do? They're having increase. Uh, they're they're losing capacity to actually maintain their home as they as they age, um, and they are not someone who's been super wealthy throughout their career. Um, so they have pretty limited resources. They're probably only able to afford to stay in the home that they're in currently because they have. Um, you know, significant tax exemptions because they're elderly, maybe they're disabled. Um, and there's not really an option for them to downsize in our community. Um, this is a grim situation that faces us. Um, I think 
very much the first order of business has to be actually making this a place where people can afford to live. Uh, I, I realize I've talked a lot about housing. I promise there's a lot more to me than that, but I do think it has to be our first order of business because it's the key that unlocks so many other problems that we face as a community. Um, I can't tell um, a private enterprise, hey, I need you to start offering jobs and they need to pay $30 an hour. That's not something that anyone has the power to do except for the owner of that private enterprise in this country. But what we could do, and, and I don't mean, I apologize for interrupting, what we could do and what you could do on the board is you could utilize economic development as, um, as a means to build middle class jobs and middle class, um, a robust robustness with the middle class stratosphere. And here's what I mean by that. We could offer tax credits to companies coming to this, to Albemarle County, and those tax credits or those incentives to come can be tagged or can be piggybacked or can be paperclipped with, you have to hire within the community. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we want you to come. A good example was Deschutes Brewery. Deschutes Brewery, this was before you, your arrival here in the area. This is the first time I spoke in front of local government in the Almore County office building down Fifth Street Extended. It was down there. And Deschutes Brewery was looking to open a headquarters on 29 South, close to J.W. Sieg and Virginia Eagle. And um, Keith Clark and, and his team at J.W. Sieg had all the land set up. This deal was in place. They were going to open this dope brewery tied to the outdoors, tied to the river. We couldn't get the deal through. Now, granted, the shoots ended up closing in Roanoke, but the reason I was so in favor of this was it was going to create 103, 104 jobs that were right in that middle-class spectrum or that middle-class pay stratosphere. And the county basically turned its back on Deschutes and would not offer the zoning flexibility that Deschutes needed to open this headquarters. So I guess my point is, and I'll get out of your way because you're going to be the supervisor. I'm just a guy with a talk show and a following here. Um, my point is this. You could utilize economic development and say, we want you to open shop here, but I'm going to have this paperclip attached to these incentives that the hiring, or at least a certain percentage, has to come within 10 miles, 15 miles of Almar. Your thoughts on any of that? I, I think the thinking there is sound. I worry what that actually looks like in execution. Okay. Um, these are organizations that will often come here with heavy uh, you know, amounts of lawyers. They've already done the math on this deal. Uh, they know whether or not this is going to be more advantageous to them uh, and when exactly they can jump out of that contract. Uh, that's something we've seen in recent years, uh, often to the county's detriment. Um, I want to make sure that if we're promising any kind of incentives, any kind of uh, investments, what we're doing is investing in working families. What we're doing is investing in Albemarle's workers, in Albemarle's families, in Albemarle's future. Um, maybe that involves, incidentally, investing in businesses that aren't already in Albemarle, but only insofar as that is actually advancing the interests of workers, that is actually advancing the interests of families. Um, if the actual math works out, that uh, these kind of tax credits can be used to uh, deliver greater value to the communities that the business is serving than is to the business, and that would be something I'd fully support. But I want to make sure that when we're talking about these kind of economic development strategies, we are doing that. We're prioritizing uh, the community. We're prioritizing the people and the workers, and we're not prioritizing, uh, you know, the bottom line of the of the actual investing business. Because frankly, they're going to be doing their due diligence to make sure it's uh, suiting their bottom line. That's fair. That's fair. Um, two, 90 seconds left, guys, and I got a 145 call. 
I cannot miss this call with this client. Um, I'm not going to be able to get to all the comments. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to get to all these questions. Perhaps we can ha welcome you back. Um, do you think this has been fair? Yep. Right? Do you, do you believe, sincerely mean that? <laughs> I, I do, Jerry. Okay, okay, okay. I just, I promised you that. I promise you that. Uh, the county, this is another one. The county just released a new draft water protection ordinance to fix the loophole staff made in 2014 that stripped protection from streams in the county without public input. What is Mr. Pruitt's position on the new ordinance? Does it go far enough? That is a very specific question about an ordinance I have not personally read. Okay. I'm sitting down with some folks to actually learn more about this in the coming weeks. Okay. Uh, it is something that's on my radar, but I am not equipped to, to talk about that in the level of detail that I believe your viewer I uh, very much respect that. I very much respect that. And you have to respect that, viewers and listeners, too. He's not on the job yet. Um, last question. 60 seconds, and then we got the 145 J-Dub, so if you can have the analytics and the data called up so we're ready to go right into the 145, that would be great. 60 seconds, anywhere you want to go, anything that the viewers and listeners want to hear, anything, show is yours. Oh, an open question. Um, you know, you can visit me on MikePruitt.com. Um, it's a very easy uh, web address to remember, but I truly do hope that all the viewers back at home uh, try and actually thoughtfully engage and reach out. Uh, I, I am very honest about the fact that there's so many things that I am still trying to learn about. Uh, we've had two folks on this uh, call who have had uh, minor technical corrections, once where I misspoken, but once where I was using uh, data that was apparently outdated, right? Uh, I was using the 2018 uh, eviction lab data, uh, and apparently there were more granular things that um, that your anonymous uh, man in both. Deep throat, deep throat. Yeah. This guy specializes I'm not say in that on data. Air, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, he specializes in data. I, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, there was a more granular piece of data that he was able to offer. So, you know, there, there are differing uh, opinions, and there's also, you know, facts that I could be exposed to. I, I do always welcome people actually reaching out and engaging. I try and get back to everyone who reaches out to me within 24 hours. Um, and I would love to hear from uh, anyone who's followed this who does have follow-up questions or who actually, you know, wants to reach out, learn how they can get involved in uh, the campaign. You know, we are still campaigning. We are still knocking doors. We are still going to have, um, you know, meet and greets and uh, yard signs. That's still part of it. Uh, that's still part of the bargain, even if I don't have someone running against me. That's something that the community deserves and, uh, and expects. Um, I want to thank you, JW 145. I'm going to go straight into this call. Mr. Pruitt, Michael Pruitt, you, um, you gave us an hour and 15 minutes without commercials. Um, literally, I'm grateful. I, I will sincerely text you again um, to see if you'll come back on. I've tagged you. Judas tagged you in the comments. When you see your phone, you're going to see 100 notifications at least, and I didn't even get to all the comments. Um, so I want to thank you. Seriously, seriously, thank you. Um, it, was, it was fair? It was fair. It was fun. Okay, okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Mike Pruitt, check his website online, follow him on Facebook, and follow him on Twitter. Tomorrow is TJ Fadley, who's running uh, against B. Lepisto Kirtley in the Rivanna District. And yes, I would like to do a, a conversation with Allison Spillman and a conversation with Dr. Meg Bryce for those that are asking. This is the I Love Seville Show. My name is Jerry Miller. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye. Thanks. Thanks. It was good. Mm -hmm. He's going to tell us from the camera.